Chapter Three of Behind the Scenes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley Jane. Behind the Scenes by Elizabeth Keckley. Chapter Three: How I Gained My Freedom. The years passed and brought many changes to me. But on these I will not dwell, as I wish to hasten to the most interesting part of my story. My troubles in North Carolina were brought to an end by my unexpected return to Virginia, where I lived with Mr. Garland, who had married Miss Anne Burwell, one of my old master's daughters. His life was not a prosperous one, and after struggling with the world for several years, he left his native state, a disappointed man. He moved to St. Louis, hoping to improve his fortune in the West, but ill-luck followed him there, and he seemed to be unable to escape from the influence of the evil star of his destiny. When his family, myself included, joined him in his new home on the banks of the Mississippi, we found him so poor that he was unable to pay the dues on a letter advertised as in the post office for him. The necessities of the family were so great that it was proposed to place my mother out at service. The idea was shocking to me. Every grey hair in her old head was dear to me, and I could not bear the thought of her going to work for strangers. She had been raised in the family, had watched the growth of each child from infancy to maturity. They had been the objects of her kindest care, and she was wound round about them as the vine winds itself about the rugged oak. They had been the central figures in her dream life, a dream beautiful to her since she had basked in the sunshine of no other. And now they proposed to destroy each tendril of affection, to cloud the sunshine of her existence, when the day was drawing to a close, when the shadows of solemn night were rapidly approaching. My mother, my poor aged mother, go among the strangers to toil for a living? No! A thousand times no! I'd rather work my fingers to the bone, bend over my sewing till the film of blindness gathered in my eyes. Nay, even beg from street to street. I told Mr. Garland so, and he gave me permission to see what I could do. I was fortunate in obtaining work, and in a short time I had acquired something of a reputation as a streamstress and dressmaker. The best ladies in St. Louis were my patrons, and when my reputation was once established, I never lacked for orders. With my needle I kept bread in the mouths of seventeen persons for two years and five months. While I was working so hard that others might live in comparative comfort, and move in those circles of society to which their birth gave them entrance, the thought often occurred to me whether I was really worth my salt or not, and then perhaps the lips curled with a bitter sneer. It may seem strange that I should place so much emphasis upon words thoughtlessly, idly spoken, but then we do many strange things in life, and cannot always explain the motives that actuate us. The heavy task was too much for me, and my health began to give way. About this time Mr. Keckley, whom I had met in Virginia, and learned to regard with more than friendship, came to St. Louis. He sought my hand in marriage, and for a long time I refused to consider his proposal, for I could not bear the thought of bringing children into slavery, of adding one single recruit to the millions bound to hopeless servitude, fettered and shackled with chains stronger and heavier than manacles of iron. I made a proposition to buy myself and son. The proposition was bluntly declined, and I was commanded never to broach the subject again. 
I would not be put off thus, for hope pointed to a freer, brighter life in the future. Why should my son be held in slavery? I often asked myself. He came into the world through no will of mine, and yet God only knows how I loved him. The Anglo-Saxon blood as well as the African flowed in his veins. The two current commingled, one singing of freedom, the other silent and sullen with generations of despair. Why should not the Anglo-Saxon triumph? Why should it be weighed down with the rich blood typical of the tropics? Must the life-current of one race bring the other race in chains as strong and enduring as if there had been no Anglo-Saxon taint? By the laws of God and nature, as interpreted by man, one half of my boy was free, and why should not this fair birthright of freedom remove the curse from the other half, raise it into the bright, joyous sunshine of liberty? I cannot answer these questions in my heart that almost maddened me, and I learned to regard human philosophy with distrust. Much as I respected the authority of my master, I could not remain silent on a subject that so nearly concerned me. One day, when I insisted on knowing whether he would permit me to purchase myself, and what price I must pay for myself, he turned to me in a petulant manner, thrust his hand into his pocket, drew forth a bright silver quarter of a dollar, and proffering it to me, said, "'Lizzie, I have told you often not to trouble me with such a question. If you really wish to leave me, take this. It will pay the passage of yourself and boy on the ferry-boat, and when you are on the other side of the river you will be free.' "'It is the cheapest way that I know of to accomplish what you desire.' I looked at him in astonishment, and earnestly replied, "'No, master, I do not wish to be free in such a manner. If such had been my wish, I should never have troubled you about obtaining your consent to purchasing myself. I can cross the river any day, as you well know, and have frequently done so, but will never leave you in such a manner. By the laws of the land I am your slave.' You are my master, and I will only be free by such means as the laws of the country provide. He expected this answer, and I knew that he was pleased. Some time afterwards he told me that he had reconsidered the question, that I had served his family faithfully, that I deserved my freedom, and that he would take one thousand two hundred dollars for myself and boy. This was joyful intelligence for me, and the reflection of hope gave a silver lining to the dark cloud of my life. Faint, it is true, but still a silver lining. Taking a perspective glance at liberty, I consented to marry. The wedding was a great event in the family. The ceremony took place in the parlour in the presence of the family and a number of guests. Mr. Garland gave me away, and the pastor, Bishop Hawkes, performed the ceremony, who had solemnized the bridals of Mr. G.'s own children. The day was a happy one, but it faded all too soon. Mr. Keckley, let me speak kindly of his faults, proved dissipated and a burden instead of a helpmate. More than all, I learned that he was a slave instead of a free man, as he represented himself to be. With the simple explanation that I lived with him eight years, let charity draw around him the mantle of silence. I went to work in earnest to purchase my freedom, but the years passed and I was still a slave. Mr. Garland's family claimed so much of my attention. In fact, I supported them, but I was not able to accumulate anything. In the meantime, Mr. Garland died, and Mr. Burwell, a Mississippi planter, came to St. Louis to settle up the estate. He was a kind-hearted man, and said I should be free, and would afford every facility to raise the necessary amount to pay the price of my liberty. Several schemes were urged upon me by my friends. 
At last I formed a resolution to go to New York, state my case, and appeal to the benevolence of the people. The plan seemed feasible, and I made preparations to carry it out. When I was almost ready to turn my face northward, Mrs. Garland told me that she would require the names of six gentlemen who would vouch for my return and become responsible for the amount at which I was valued. I had many friends in St. Louis, and as I believed that they had confidence in me, I felt I could readily obtain the names desired. I started out, stated my case, and obtained five signatures to the paper, and my heart throbbed with pleasure, for I did not believe that the six would refuse me. I called, he listened patiently, then remarked, Yes, yes, Lizzie, the scheme is a fair one, and you shall have my name, but I shall bid you good-bye when you start. Good-bye for a short time, I ventured to add. No. Good-bye for all time. And he looked at me as if he would read my very soul with his eyes. I was startled. What do you mean, Mr. Farrow? Surely you do not think that I do not mean to come back. No. No what, then? Simply this. You mean to come back, that is, you mean so now, but you never will. When you reach New York, the abolitionists will tell you what savages we are, and they will prevail on you to stay there, and we shall never see you again. But I assure you, Mr. Farrow, you are mistaken. I not only mean to come back, but will come back, and pay every cent of the twelve hundred dollars for myself and child. I was beginning to feel sick at heart, for I could not accept the signature of this man when he had no faith in my pledges. No, slavery, eternal slavery, rather than be regarded with distrust by those who respect, I esteemed. But I am not mistaken, he persisted. Time will show. When you start for the north I shall bid you good-bye. The heart grew heavy. Every ray of sunshine was eclipsed. With humble pride, weary step, tearful face, and a dull aching pain, I left the house. I walked along the street mechanically. The cloud had no silver lining now. The rosebuds of hope had withered and died without lifting up their heads to receive the due kiss of morning. There was no morning for me. All was night, dark night. I reached my own home, and weeping threw myself upon the bed. My trunk was packed, my luncheon was prepared by mother, the cars were ready to bear me where I would not hear the clank of chains, where I would breathe the free, invigorating breezes of the glorious north. I had dreamed such a happy dream, in imagination had drunk of the water, the pure sweet crystal water of life. But now, now the flowers had withered before my eyes, darkness had settled down upon me like a pal, and— Darkness had settled down upon me like a pall, and I was left alone with cruel mocking shadows. The first paroxysm of grief was scarcely over when a carriage stopped in front of the house. Mrs. Le Bourgeois, one of my kind patrons, got out of it and entered the door. She seemed to bring sunshine with her handsome, cheery face. She came to where I was and in her sweet way said, Lizzie, I hear you were going to New York to beg for money to buy your freedom. I've been thinking over the matter, and told Ma it would be a shame to allow you to go north to beg for what we should give you. We have many friends in St. Louis, and I am going to raise the twelve hundred dollars required among them. I have two hundred dollars put away for a present. I am indebted to you one hundred dollars. Mother owes you fifty dollars, and will add another fifty to it, and as I do not want the present, I will make the money a present to you. Don't start for New York now until I see what I can do among your friends.' 
Like a ray of sunshine she came, and like a ray of sunshine she went away. The flowers no longer were withered, drooping. Again they seemed to bud and grow in fragrance and beauty. Mrs. Le Bourgeois, God bless her dear good heart, was more than successful. The twelve hundred dollars were raised, and at last my son and myself were free. Free! Free! What a glorious ring to the word! Free! The bitter heart-struggle was over. Free! The soul could go out to heaven and to God with no chains to clog its flight or pull it down. Free! The earth wore a brighter look, and the very stars seemed to sing with joy. Yes, free! Free by the laws of man and the smile of God, and heaven bless them who made me so! The following, copied from the original papers, contain, in brief, the history of my emancipation. I promised to give Lizzie and her son George their freedom on the payment of $1,200. Anne P. Garland June twenty seventh, 1855 Lizzie, I send you this note to sign for the sum of $75, and when I give you the whole amount, you will then sign the other note for $100. Ellen M. Doan. In the paper you will find twenty-five dollars. See it is all right before the girl leaves. I have received of Lizzie Keckley nine hundred and fifty dollars, which I have deposited with Darby and Barksdale for her. Six hundred dollars on the twenty-first of July, three hundred on the twenty-seventh and twenty-eighth of July, and fifty dollars on thirteenth of August, eighteen fifty-five. I have and shall make use of said money for Lizzie's benefit, and hereby guarantee her to one per cent, per month, as much more as can be made she shall have. The one per cent, as it may be checked out, I'll be responsible for myself, as well as for the whole amount when it shall be needed by her. Willis L. Williams St. Louis, 13th of August, 1855 Know all men by these presents that for and in consideration of the love and affection we bear towards our sister, Anne P. Garland, of St. Louis, Misery, and for the further consideration of five dollars in hand paid, we hereby sell and convey unto her the said Anne P. Garland, a negro woman named Lizzie, and a negro boy, her son, named George. Said Lizzie now resides at St. Louis, and is a streamstress, known there as Lizzie Garland, the wife of a yellow man named James, and called James Keckley. Said George is a bright mulatto boy, and is known in St. Louis as Garland's George. We warrant these two slaves to be slaves for life, but make no representations as to age or health. Witness our hands and seals this tenth day of August, 1855. Jas R. Putnam, L.S. E. M. Putnam, L.S. A. Burwell, L.S. The State of Mississippi, Warren County, City of Vicksburg. Be it remembered that on the tenth day of August, in the year of our Lord, 1855, before me, Francis N. Steele, a commissioner resident in the city of Vicksburg, duly commissioned and qualified by the executive authority, and under the laws of the State of Missouri, take the acknowledgment of deeds, etc., to be used or recorded therein, personally appeared James R. Putnam and E. M. Putnam, his wife, and Admistead Burwell, to me known to be the individuals named in, and who executed the foregoing conveyance, and acknowledged that they exalted the same for the purposes therein mentioned. 
and that E. M. Putnam, being by me examined apart from her husband, and being fully acquainted with the contents of the foregoing conveyance, acknowledged that she executed the same freely, and relinquished her dower and any other claim she might have in and to the property therein mentioned freely, and without fear, compulsion, or undue influence of her said husband. In witness whereof I have hereunto set my hand and affixed my official seal this tenth day of August, A.D., 1855. L.S. F.N. Steele, Commissioner for Missouri. Know all men that I, Anne P. Garland, of the county and city of St. Louis, State of Missouri, for me and in consideration of the sum of one thousand two hundred dollars, to me in hand paid this day in cash, hereby emancipate my negro woman Lizzie and her son George. The said Lizzie is known in St. Louis as the wife of James, who is called James Keckley. He is of light complexion, about thirty-seven years of age, by trade a dressmaker, and called by those who know her Garland's Lizzie. The said boy, George, is the only child of Lizzie, is about sixteen years of age, and is almost white, and called by those who know him Garland's George. Witness my hand and seal this thirteenth day of November, 1855. Anne P. Garland, L.S. Witness John Wickham, Willis L. Williams. In St. Louis Circuit Court, October term, 1855, November fifteenth, eighteen fifty five, State of Missouri, County of St. Louis. Be it remembered that on this fifteenth day of November, eighteen hundred and fifty five, in open court came John Wickham and Willis L. Williams. These two subscribing witnesses, examined under oath to that effect, proved the execution and acknowledgment of said deed by Anne P. Garland to Lizzie and her son George, which said proof of acknowledgment is entered on the record of the court of that day. In testimony whereof, I hereto set my hand and affix the seal of said court at office in the city of St. Louis, the day and year last aforesaid. L.S. W.M. J. Hammond, Clark State of Missouri, County of St. Louis, S.S. I, W. M. J. Hammond, Clerk of the Circuit Court within and for the county aforesaid, certify the foregoing to be a true copy of a deed of emancipation from Anne P. Garland to Lizzie and her son George, as fully as the same remain in my office. In testimony whereof I hereto set my hand and affix the seal of said court at office in the city of St. Louis, this fifteenth day of November, 1855. W. M. J. Hammond, Clark, by W. M. A. Pennington, D. C. State of Missouri, County of St. Louis, S. S. I, the undersigned recorder of said county, certified that the foregoing instrument of writing was filed for record in my office on the 14th day of November, 1855. It is truly recorded in book number 169, page 288. Witness my hand in official seal, date last aforesaid. L.S. C. Kemal, Recorder. End of chapter 3. Recording by Ashley Jane.